our job to help educate people that it's real. It's not something that we're making up. You know, it's not something that we're using as an excuse. If your community had experienced this, you would have the same conditions, you know, but because you haven't had this exposure to trauma and because when you do, you have the resources you need, the outcomes for your community are a lot better. We want the same thing. Did you know that California spends $50 billion a year on the criminal justice system? What would happen if we redirected just 1% of that budget toward communities? On this episode of Latinx, Tanish Hollins and David Guisar answer that question. Tanish is the State Director of Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice, a program of Californians for Safety and Justice. As they say on their website, this nonprofit works with Californians from all walks of life to replace prison and justice system waste with common sense solutions that create safe neighborhoods and safe public dollars. Tanisha herself is a crime survivor and a native of San Francisco. She has been deeply engaged in the Bay Area social justice movement as a community organizer, policy advocate, and systems navigator for nearly two decades now. David is a California regional manager for Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice and one of the founding members. He has been leading training in advocacy and policy, conducting outreach for survivors, and helping to orchestrate events for crime survivors across the country. You can learn more about them at cssj.org and progressnotprisons.com. Hola, yo soy Andrea Márquez, and this is Larnequis, a show brought to you by La Red Hispana and the Hispanic Communications Network for the new generation of Latinx. We want to go beyond listening. We're ready to speak up. So join me in conversation every week as I meet Latinx from all over, de diferentes colores y sabores. As you know, a podcast is a journey, and I would love for you to follow this one. So join our community on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Latinx and reach out. You can also find out more at our website at wearelatinx.com. To tell you the truth, I was a little shocked to learn that California spends $50 billion a year on the criminal justice system. And just that 1% of that could help, could go to- towards healthcare and education and shelter. And this is not at all something that I was aware of um, or educated on. And so being able to speak to both of you who have been doing this for years and who have been, you know, trying to find ways for the community to be doing better in things that really matter to us, like education and healthcare, especially right now because of the pandemic where everything, all of our flaws are in the forefront as a country. Um, So first of all, can you, both um, introduce yourselves and tell me a little bit about what you do. Yeah, good morning, Andrea. Um, well, my name is David Guisar. I'm from South Central Los Angeles, uh, Los Angeles. Um, born and raised and still live out here. And um, <clears throat> I'm the youngest of five. And um, yeah, I've, I've unfortunately um been very fortunate, but then through the unfortunate experience of of, um, of losing my brother Oscar uh, in 1983 uh, to homicide, and then losing my brother Gilbert in in 2012 to to the same type of violence. Um, you know, I became a part of um, 
of, of, of crime survivors for safety and justice in, in 2012 as, as it was um, unfolding and, and um, you know, really being inclusive of, of those voices in our communities, right, through a time where the conversation was, was leaning on, on boys and men of color and, and what were the, the, the intersections around, um, you know, what, what, what that conversation was highlighting was also the, the violence, right? And, 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 and um, uh, what would it take to reduce incarceration, um, you know, in an effort to, to save the state money um, at a time where we were under federal jurisdiction and lawsuits and things of that nature. Um, it gave us an opportunity to like really um, take a closer look at, at, at what would be the benefits to our community from releases um, and what would be the cons, you know, to that if we didn't address the trauma that's connected to, to um, our communities, right? A lot of the people that are incarcerated also happen to be a part of the same zip codes in which we are are traumatized. So the violence, um, the, the 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 offenses that happen lead people to prisons, and and then they come back home, and then they're coming back home unhealed, you know, to a community. So hurt people, hurt people. The whole element around that, recidivism. Uh, we have to work on healing and and make those connections. So uh, that was very important for us to to elevate. So when we talk about that one percent. We're consistently thinking about that piece of how do we increase and sustain trauma recovery centers? Like how do we increase mental health? How do we increase and you know anything around that we talk about? We're talking about sustainability, right? And I'm sure uh, Tanish can continue to to elaborate on on those pieces that I've already raised and stuff. So my name is Tanish Hollins. I'm a native of San Francisco born and raised. Um, I am Afro-Latina. My mother was Boricua. Um, I don't speak Spanish uh, <laughs> fluently, uh, but enough to give by. Um, so yeah, how I, I came into this movement, um, growing up in San Francisco, especially the, you know, at the height of the crack epidemic, I saw both sides of my family really impacted um, by drugs, uh, you know, incarceration, uh, family separation, um, you know, a, a lot of issues and, you know, in our community too, you know, a lot of friends and extended family members being impacted by a lot of these issues. Um, and as I got older, you know, kind of learned more about the root of the problem, um, you know, and the response to the problem, uh, you know, in, in my city, a lot of the response to what was happening in our family, in our community, um, was suppression, you know, it was police, it was, you know, more family separation, more, more punishment. Um, and what I knew to be true about my family and friends and the people around me is that they wanted to be safe. You know, they wanted to live a healthy life. They cared about themselves. They cared about their families, um, but they were struggling. And because they did not have the resources or support um, because of the trauma they were experiencing, um, you know, because of uh, the barriers that were created once they got, you know, came into contact with systems, um, they were stuck. You know, many of them felt stuck and just weren't getting the support that they needed. 
So I, you know, got involved as an organizer in my community because I really wanted to communicate to the people um, who were coming up with quote unquote solutions that were harming us. I wanted to help them understand that one, their solutions aren't, aren't helping. Um, and two, that, you know, if you really do want to help, you need to listen to and value the people who are going through these experiences. Because what I saw, um, you know, were, were a lot of good, hardworking people, um, you know, people who had dreams for their lives and for their families, um, you know, and, and a lot of them were caught up in situations, either making bad decisions because they didn't, um, you know, have the safety that they needed or have the access that they needed. Um, and because of the trauma they experienced just going into a cycle. So I got involved as an organizer, you know, wanting to bring more opportunities and things like that to my community um, and help build that bridge. Um, and I, you know, have been in this work for a little over two decades now, you know, did, did some community organizing, worked in city government, you know, through different programs and initiatives, um, you know, trying to create jobs and well-being in the community. and. I, I understood the problem, um, you know, I understood what was going on, but I understood it very differently um, when trauma visited my family in, you know, in a, in a very different way. Um, I lost two brothers, one in uh, 2013 and one in 2017, both to gun violence. And, you know, as somebody who had been in the community helping people navigate these services and resources when they were in trouble, um, I understood the problem. But when my family got impacted, I understood it very differently. Um, and I, you know, just became like fully aware of the trauma um, that you experience when you have to grieve and also fight for justice, also try to make sure that your family's needs are being met in that moment when there are not enough resources to bury your loved one, when because they had past convictions, you know, they may not be eligible for certain things, even though that had nothing to do with me or their mother or the rest of our family, all those sanctions were passed on to us. And it really got me thinking about how many times in our lives that had been the case, you know, that because of contact with, with the criminal justice system, the sanctions that, you know, my brothers or, you know, the rest of my family may have gotten got passed down to us and, and made it so that we couldn't get what we needed um, and kept us all paralyzed. It wasn't just about whether or not that one person had went to jail or prison. How did that affect the entire family? Um, and so in 2017, I got connected uh, to Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice. Um, and what really drew, drew me to the work was the healing, you know, the focus on the healing and making the connection between all of those experiences that I named and where the investments have been going and why it's been so hard for us as a community um, to come together and heal, especially when there hasn't been uh, the kind of investment we need to make sure that folks get access to the healing and that folks get access to the important things that they need when things happen like housing, you know, like employment, like relocation, um, like mental health, um, burial assistance. Well, they haven't been supported well. All of the focus has really been on uh, crime and punishment and tough on crime, you know, to, to prevent things from happening. So I've been really proud to be a part of this work, you know, for the past couple of years. I'm now the state director um, for CSSJ, which means I help along with David um, and our Northern California leader, 
to Shantae manage a network of about 12,000 survivors, mostly black and brown um, from low income communities who have experienced what we've experienced and who are calling for changes. And, you know, people who understand the intersection between, um, you know, the criminal justice system, what happens to us in our communities, how we are disproportionately impacted by it, and what we need to do to come out of that and really address, you know, the root causes of what gets us, uh, causes harm in our community. So it's very clear to me why both of you were motivated to be doing this, because you were both directly impacted by the root of the problem that we don't usually talk about. And, and you, you mentioned that, that you grow up and then when you're directly affected, you, you see it differently, you understand it differently. And um, that motivates you to want to get involved and do something, something about it. If we did redirect some of this um, budget for prisons to our communities, what true impact could that have long-term for how we address gun violence, how we address racial injustice, how we address lack of education, what could we, and, and, and lack of health care, what could we, what long-term could actually be done if we d redirected some of that budget? You know, with, with progress, uh, not prisons, progreso, si, prisiones, no, um, you know, it's, it's very specific, you know, what we, what we see is, is needed, right? And and I think the outcome, I think your question is directed to to the outcome. Um, how are things going to look, right? And and it's, you know, um, in 2012, we were kind of like, in theory, um, you know, um, you know, speaking of, well, we had more of this. And, and I think in both of our introductions, um, we were able to elevate just in our experience, like what was missing, right? And 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 in those kind of conversations, um, um, these needs um, have arised in 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 terms of what they look like in society, in terms of institutions, right? So when we look at education, of course, we need more funding for schools, right? We need those after-school programs. We need affordable housing, you know, sustainable affordable housing. Um, we need uh, job development, right? We need, um, you know, good health care. Uh, we need mental health services. Um, we need uh, rehabilitation and, and, and prevention. And, and, you know, the list goes, right? So if we had that in, in a sustainable manner, I think we would have more, less of a competitive element in terms of, of, of organizations who traditionally provide these types of services, you know, uh, working on pilot funding programs, right? Two, three, four years, and then and they're like, well, where's the funding going to go to, right? Like, so <clears throat> we would like to see that wellness is an underscored, shared safety is underscored um, in these conversations. You know, um, one of the things that when I was given the opportunity to participate with, um, with crime survivors of safety and justice, one of the first things we realized was that once we encapsulated our experiences and it translated to these kind of elements, trauma recovery centers, there was one trauma recovery center um, in San Francisco that is still there, uh, the San Francisco Trauma Recovery Center that we looked as a model because as we were describing 
what we needed. We needed like a drop-in center, right? We needed, you know, that navigator. We needed that person to kind of like, um, you know, hold us through the trauma process uh, in order to know how to fill out that application for, for, um, for, 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 for benefits or, or assistance, right? Um, uh, that, that come with victims compensation that we needed those, that funeral service support, um, uh, just getting it done, right? Like planning a funeral and still thinking about a timeline <laughs> uh, of, of, of a possible investigation happening, um, you know, getting back to work. And, and I'm sure, um, you know, we would definitely love to elevate, you know, some, some pieces of legislation that we have also worked on. So I wanted to share some fun facts that I found out on the Progress Not Prisons website. If we redirected 1% of the $50 billion spent on prisons each year, it could provide 4,000 nurses, 11,000 EMTs, 16,000 COVID-19 treatments, and healthcare coverage to 1,050,000 people. In terms of education, Part of that budget would mean 6,000 elementary school teachers on staff, public education for 41,000 K through 12 kids, and tuition and fees for 62,000 university students. The Progress Not Prisons website has a lot of infographics that put those numbers in perspective, like showing how California has 128,000 prison beds compared to 75,000 hospital beds. For all you Californians, Progress Not Prisons invites you to sign a pledge to vote by casting a ballot in the 2020 general election, either on November 3rd or earlier through early voting or vote by mail. You know, my brother was murdered in 1983. My brother Oscar, you know, um, my nephew and my family, my younger kids and, and, and my family too, you know, um, they've inherited some of that trauma when I wasn't seeking that healing. Like I was all over the place, right? Like heavily using drugs, still one foot in, one foot out. And, and you know, with my brother Gilbert being murdered in, in 2012, you know, I, I try to like really pause and say like, what is it that my family needs? Like, what are those things that, that happen, right? So, so a trauma recovery center um, in California was the ideal situation for me to be able to access in South Central, somewhere where I could take my mom with no bias and say like, hey mom, like, 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 let's find someone that you can relate to, that you could talk to, right? That it's not in inside of an interrogation room at a police department, right? Like that's, that's kind of like the get down, right? So um, necesitamos progreso y no prisiones. So progreso sí, prisiones no is something that my mom, you know, who has passed now for the last, you know, two years ago, um, I, I feel that it's, I, I learned when my mom passed that, that I saw her, her condition in her body and, and, and um, you know, the, 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 that emotional trauma, the spiritual trauma, like worked into her body, you know, into her, into her health. So when we look at these, um, you know, buckets of, of, of areas that, that, that we will, that we see that 1% being able to sustain, 
um, we see uh, people being able to recover, right? That people that are able to at least have that 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 ability to to have some type of support, right? That that handheld of. So it's it's really about sustainability, right? It's not 15 hours of 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 therapy sessions. It's it's long term, right? Like like man, I, you know, it's already been eight years that my brother Gilbert was murdered, and and I still want to reach out to talk to him. You know, it's 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 a lifelong process, right? So education, all these pieces are are need to be sustainable. Um, because when we look at the spending of, of prisons since 1980, $1 trillion has gone into the justice system. $1 trillion. You know, that, that's a lot of money. So when we look at $50 billion, 50 billiones annuales, you know, that's every year, you know, since, since, 20, uh, uh, since 2010, just the prisons alone, 100 billion, you know, that's a lot of money. You know, these, these trauma recovery centers, now there's 14 in the state of California, you know, they get like half a million dollar budgets and they're able to help a lot of people, you know. So the model works. It's no longer a theory. Uh, we've been able to sustain a lot of different pieces. We can't afford to lose them now, you know. We, we need progress, not prisons. Hey guys, if you like our content, make sure to support us by downloading our episodes on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Share with your community and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Latinikis. You can also find out more on our website at wearelatinikis.com. California led the way um, on the tough on crime policies that we have in the United States. When you look at like three strikes and, um, you know, some of the other uh, uh, penalties that have, you know, really flooded our jails and prisons over the past couple of decades. Um, and unfortunately, you know, when voters passed um, Prop 47, Prop 57, you know, those, uh, those reforms really helped reduce the number of folks in jail and prison, especially black and brown folks, as we know we're overrepresented in, in jails and prisons, and allowed us to move some of those resources to the things that David was talking about. I'm just kind of, you know, piggybacking on some of the things that he said into your question about what would change or what could change. You know, we gotta be, we have to be realistic. We know that money doesn't change racism, right? Doesn't uproot racism. Um, and we know that, you know, anti-Black racism and anti-Latino racism, um, racism against people of color in this country is a serious issue. Um, and that for decades, legislation, laws have been written, you know, to really, you know, keep our people um, out of resources that we need. You know, even housing laws have been written, literally written, you know, to keep uh, Black and brown folks and immigrants um, out of housing you know, or keep us restricted to certain areas. Um, but I think what we want is what everyone wants, right? We want mm -hmm. equity. We want to make sure that, you know, what, no matter what neighborhood we live in, our, our kids go to good schools. We want to make sure that we have the opportunity um, to work, you know, and, and make an income to support our families or start a business. Um, you know, when I think about, you know, our, our immigrant families in my family, you know, five generations ago, 
came here because they wanted the economic opportunity. You know, they wanted to be able to build for their families, build wealth for their families. They came here for safety, you know, because the conditions that they were living in were not safe. And so I think that what everybody wants um, and what everybody should have access to here is that kind of safety, that kind of well-being. But what we see right now is that there's safety for some, not safety for all. There's access for some, not access for all. Um, and a lot of the experiences that David talked about and that I talked about with losing our loved ones um, you know, to homicide and to incarceration and other communities, they experience these things too. We just experience them at a higher rate in our communities. But the difference is in those communities when they experience something like that, they have access to resources. They have you know, therapists and counselors in schools. They have school social workers and nurses um, you know, in private schools where they can afford to you know, have that resource. They have access to mental health. Um, there are resources to help people um, if they need financial assistance. But in our communities, it's not equitable. And there's a lot of red tape that people have to go through to get access to help, or it's not there at all because the investment has not been there. And I think it really speaks to this belief that black and brown people um, cause their own problems. You know, when we think about, um, you know, our experience, I know David shares this too, a lot of people that we talk to, you know, throughout California who have lost loved ones to gun violence or gang violence or other types of crime, usually when we, uh, you know, have to talk to law enforcement or to people who are supposedly here to help us, the question is, what did you do? Or what did your family member do to cause this, to cause this situation? Um, and so it's that bias, it's that thinking that we don't want safety, that we don't care about our communities, that we don't care about each other, that really fuels the way that people look at our communities. And it also drives whether or not we receive the investments. So it's important for us, people who have the lived experience, who've been through it, who come from our communities that, you know, have these issues, you know, have experience with these issues to be in the room to inform, you know, the decision makers to help them understand, you know, and to also call out um, that belief system and change that narrative. No, this is not what we want. You know, we're, this is not who we are, you know, but you cannot ignore the conditions that you know, policies and decisions have created in our community, and we are working hard to change that, but we're gonna hold you accountable to make sure that you do what you're supposed to do as a lawmaker, as a leader, that you are responding to our needs, that you are representing us to make sure that those resources do come to our communities so that our families can get the access to the support and the resources they need and so that we can be healthy you know that we want we want wellness in our community and to david's point about you know the trauma the impact that it has on us and our bodies you know and um intergenerational you know many of us were born into traumas that you know we had no control over and had no awareness over especially when you think about our families who had to you know um migrate here from other places um, and those of us, you know, for, for black folks who, um, you know, have had generations of family members brought to this country and enslaved, that, that trauma lives in us. It lives in our communities and the ways that we've had to uh, adapt to that trauma have been handed down through generations 
to us. And so we can't ignore these things when we start talking about solutions. And it's our job to help educate people that it's real. It's not something that we're making up. You know, it's not something that we're using as an excuse. If your community had experienced this, you would have the same conditions, you know, but because you haven't had this exposure to trauma and because when you do, you have the resources you need, the outcomes for your community are a lot better. We want the same thing. So I wanted to try something new, and I'm looking for fun ways to connect with you guys further. Ariel, my producer, gave me this great idea to call this segment La Esquinita, The Corner. This will be a work in progress, but I'll be sharing some of my thoughts of the week. Since the pandemic, I've been staying in Brownsville, Texas with my parents and working remotely just to spend some time with them. I don't know how many of you have done that, but for me, it's been sort of fun. I haven't lived at home since I graduated from high school or spent as much time with my family as I have now. So it seems like we're making up for years of board games and long talks, cooking, watching movies, and just relaxing. For those of you who feel caged or like you need space because you had already gotten used to living alone, just remember this is only temporary and use this time to strengthen your relationship with your family. Disfruta y convive. Que la vida se trata de esos pequeños momentos con nuestros seres queridos. I work in Hispanic communications and Hispanic marketing. And essentially our job as a, as a company is to walk into rooms where they don't usually have minorities or they're not used to having minorities and kind of representing that voice of okay this is what you're missing this is what you're not thinking about when you think about the latino communities and everything they have to go to through this is uh what you're not thinking when you when we talk about social determinants of health and the zip code that you're born into and the traumas that we face and that we've that have been passed down through generations and this is how you can address them and i absolutely think that it's important to have us in rooms to be able to say that and address these things because many of these issues would not even be discussed or or even known about if if we don't if we're not there right to talk about them how then do i tie all of this and for many of our listeners or most of our listeners are millennials and gen z some of them will be first first time voters for these elections how does my vote how does our vote affect all of this? How, how is it an, an easy way to help? Or how does that influence progress, not prisons? I know that, especially right now, what we're seeing in the political landscape is very discouraging. A lot of us don't even believe that if we cast a vote, that it'll be counted, like it'll actually make it uh, to be counted. Um, and what we're seeing, you know, from Uh, the presidential candidates and, you know, adding on top of that a pandemic and everything else that's happening right now, it's easy to feel like your voice is going to get lost in the wind or that your, your vote won't count or it won't matter. Or maybe that you're voting for more of the same because quite frankly, maybe neither party or no candidate really has an agenda that's going to help our communities in the way that we think we need to, to be helped. But the truth is, 
um, that it's our job, like it's our responsibility as citizens to keep pushing for that. It's less about the candidates, it's less about um, you know, how they feel or how they represent, and it's more about us. And every time we cast a vote, you know, every time we show up in a conversation, every time we, you know, uh, use the social media platform, even Twitter, hell, the president uses Twitter, <laughs> you know, but even every time we lift our voices, um, we participate in this process to hold people accountable. And that's what we need. We need to continue to exercise our right to hold leaders accountable. And one way to do that is through our vote, whether you believe it'll be counted or not. We can go into, you know, the historical context of how our people, you know, were not able to legally vote, and how many of our people are still not legally able to vote, um, that deserve to vote, and, and because they work in this country and they keep this country going, um, and how many of us have had our rights stripped away from us, um, black and brown, who cannot um, exercise their right to vote, but give free labor, you know, to this country. It's on us to show up um, and really be able to, um, you know, exercise our voice on their behalf, but to keep holding folks accountable for the decisions and keep pushing until we have an agenda that actually does speak to what we want. I think that for young folks and Gen Zers, um, in a lot of ways, it's easier to critique and say, this just doesn't work for me. But I also admire the spirit of demanding something new. You know, I, I, my daughter is, uh, well, I have two daughters, but I have a 21-year-old and a 19-year-old. Um, and they're thinking about, you know, politics and social issues are a lot more radical than mine. And I thought I was radical. You know, I came up under Tupac and the Black Panthers, you know, <laughs> and Che Guevara and all these other books that I read about where we needed to go. And they're way different, you know. Um, they're demanding it now because they, you know, are in a in a time um, in history where it's like we don't have the luxury of waiting when we're getting, you know, information right now about what our world looks like. So I admire that, you know, but I say to that, show up, right? Like continue to show up and bring that spirit, um, you know, use, exercise it all of the ways, not just one way, right? Not just with the demonstration, um, in the marching and the protests, but also with your vote, also with showing up in these discussions with your local decision makers, your local electeds, also with the state. You know, the we have the right as citizens to participate in public comment, to, you know, to to bring our opinions. There are citizen advisory councils that we should be on. You know, our community should be on. We should be there. And, you know, the language barrier shouldn't matter. You know, our Latino folks, our, our, our uh, monolingual Spanish speaking, demand it, you know, show up. If you follow me on Instagram at Andrea M. Here, you might have already seen that I recommend books. So I thought of giving you my recommendation of the week here. If you're in your 20s or entering your 20s, I just finished reading a book called The Defining Decade, why Your 20s Matter, and How to Make the Most of Them Now, by Meg J. Though the book is a bit outdated when it talks about, say, social media, because it was published in 2012, the majority of the book still rings true today, and I think it should be a must-read for everyone in their early 20s. I mean, I wish I had discovered this book my junior year of college. The book is a bit of a hard pill to swallow and argues against the idea that 30 is a new 20. 
Give it a read and let me know what you think by DMing us at Latinx or you can DM me directly at Andrea M. Here. There is more than just the presidential election, right? We local elections, they're just as important. They're sometimes even more important because these are the people who are directly deciding what's going on in every single one of our communities. As you mentioned, it's it's showing up, it's having these conversations, it's educating yourself, it's it's reading everything and anything and not going by just the headlines, which is a big thing that we talk about here at Latinx. We have a weekly political segment um, where we have a Democratic, a former Democratic congressman and the president of the Libre Initiative, who is a Republican. And we come together every week to discuss issues on both sides of the aisle and perspectives. And it's, and it's mostly about Latinos, but what we want to always emphasize is educate yourself. Learn everything that has to be out there because that's how you know why you're voting why you're making these decisions why we're having these conversations it's not just about you know social media and tweeting stuff and help by having these conversations help by learning help by when you're speaking that there's some something behind it because if you don't live it directly a lot of us just let it pass it by right unless we ask questions as i'm as i'm able to do and the privilege to to have with both of you thank you for underlining to the the importance of knowing our our um you know our elected officials and 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 for the most part all elected officials have to center themselves at the local community uh whether they're they're congress folks or whether they're state um or our local local folks i think that one of the most heartwarming experiences that I had when in 2012 when we first went knocking on state legislator um, you know uh, our representatives in, in the state capital of California and Sacramento was the the, the welcoming and, and how accessible our, our state legislators that we went to visit from our communities were and 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 um, they were like hey we've been waiting for you you know a lot of them know what it's like in our communities but if we're not there um it, it's 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 hard for them to, to represent our experiences right and and just to know that there's that interconnectedness i think that's one of the things that i i learned um about what we're doing is that it's a very comprehensive um um element of technology right these politics are um of, of of casting our ballots you know you you have to know you're registered to vote you you have to know the deadlines you know you 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 got to know where to go uh drop it off i think we are hearing that a lot um and it's the same thing with knowing our legislators you know like doing some background like who are you like can i go meet your your field deputy and and they're accessible right we we find it that they're friendlier than than, than most um uh would think um so just doing that homework and 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 the more of us that think alike, um, the 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 greater the need becomes. Fifty billion dollars a year in public safety is not the answer, you know. People can visit cssj.org. That's our crime 
survivors for safety and justice. There's a lot of great information on that page about a lot of what David talked about. If you want to know more about the trauma recovery centers, also how to join our chapters. We have um, eight chapters in California, um, LA, um, we have a couple in the Bay Area, Sacramento, Stockton, uh, San Francisco, Central Valley. We have a chapter that started about a year ago, San Diego, Inland Empire. Um, and we have survivors that come together in those chapters um, for healing, you know, but also to organize, right? And to do a lot of what David talked about, like get to know their legislators, have conversations with them about um, what changes they want to see in their community and where they want um, services and resources to be going, right? Um, so cssj.org. Um, and then you talked about voting. We are, um, right now we have a, a, a campaign, a, a public education campaign called Heal the Vote. Um, and so the purpose behind Heal the Vote is to do exactly what you mentioned earlier, to get more of our people to pledge to vote this year. We're trying to get 10,000 survivors in California from our communities to make a pledge to vote. Um, and we're doing a lot of voter education to help folks understand what their rights are um, in the process, because we're hearing a lot of scary stuff. Um, so you can go to cssj.org to get the information about Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice, the work that we're doing, um, get connected to a chapter and get voter information. Um, there's a lot of information there about how to register and how to cast your vote. We invite your listeners to 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 take that pledge with us, you know, um, to say, yes, I will vote. You know, nonpartisan, just, just say you're gonna vote. So thank you so much for that opportunity for us to share that cssj.org. So guys, as I always say, Make sure to support your communities. It doesn't matter what you choose to advocate for, just go out there and help. Connect and inspire others to do the same. Thank you for listening and supporting Latinx. We've loved seeing the growth and engagement on our platforms. Remember to check out additional information about this episode in the description. Lastly, support us by downloading our podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts so you can stay up to date. And join our community on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Latinx reach out and let me know what's important to you. I'd love to hear what you have to say.